And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Good. Uh, I get a feeling that you're doing really well because it was a very sing-song kind of opening. I'm a professional, and delivering the intro in a enthusiastic and professional manner. <laughs> I'm doing well today. Yeah, it's a, a wonderful day. It's beautiful. Uh, I had a good night's sleep. Everything is fantastic. Everything's coming up, Ben. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I think it's all downhill from here because we have reached the climax of the show. What is that look you're giving me? That was good. That was a good joke. So, yes, today we are watching The Climax from 1944, directed by George Wagner. So, despite its title, this is a sequel to Phantom of the Opera. No. Well, <laughs> no. I've been misinformed. It's not. Kind of. Okay. <laughs> How about you tell us the story of this? The story behind the climax. How did we get here? How did we get to the climax? Yes. So, the climax is not necessarily a sequel to Phantom of the Opera. It, it, in fact, it's, it's not. It's not a sequel to Phantom of the Opera. Oh. But it did begin production as a sequel to Phantom of the Opera. Um, and a lot of the why of this movie and the behind-the-scenes of this movie ties in to Phantom of the Opera, specifically the 1943 remake of Phantom of the Opera, which we covered on the show. Yeah, that's episode 108. Now, it is on the miscellaneous list. Uh, we did not rank it. We determined it was not a horror movie. Yeah. But if you want to hear the whole story behind that decision, it's episode 108. Go take a listen. Um, as far as the film itself, it stars Claude Rains, Susanna Foster, and Nelson Eddy. And probably the most exciting thing about the 43 Phantom is the fact that Claude Rains plays the Phantom. Oh, I would have said that it was in Technicolor, because I don't think Claude Rains does a great job as playing the Phantom. But we're a pro-Claude Rains podcast. I, I get it. Yeah. To quickly recap that film, uh, we have violinist Enrique Claudin, who is Claude Rains. Uh, he is let go from the opera. Now, he has no money saved up because he's been anonymously funding Christine Dubois' music lessons. In order to make some money, he tries to sell some original music, this special concerto that he's written, and because the publisher tries to kind of blow him off, there's kind of a misunderstanding, and he thinks the publisher is stealing his work. So he strangles the publisher and then gets acid sprayed on his face, making him deformed. With nowhere to go, he retreats to the opera house and becomes the Phantom of the Opera. Um, this is when he begins pressuring the managers to give Christine leading parts, and in doing all of that, he actually does eventually kill the current lead, Madame Biancaroli, and her maid. Meanwhile, so that's like the phantom part of the plot, uh, the rest of the film is dedicated to a love triangle between Christine, Inspector Raoul, and baritone Anatoly. 
is quite focused on kind of a, a rom-com vibe with this love triangle. When the chandelier falls, Claudine brings Christine down to the basement to sing only for him because suddenly he is in love with her. As Anatoly and Raoul catch up, randomly Liszt shows up to play Claudine's concerto in an attempt to distract the phantom. Christine does recognize the song as a childhood song, but no, nothing else is kind of put into that. Anatoly and Raoul come in um, to rescue Christine. In a kerfuffle, they shoot the ceiling, and the cave basement collapses. Now, our three lovebirds escape, and Claudine is trapped underneath the rubble and dies. film ends with Christine refusing to choose between Anatoly and Raoul, and instead choosing her career. So this film, like I said earlier, we felt it was not a horror movie, um, and that's because it was trying to appeal to too many people, too many demographics. Um, because we have like a Technicolor musical type of film with a rom-com, and then, hey, also, let's throw in some horror, but it's a very, like, tepid horror. And as we kind of detail in episode 108, um, the film had kind of a tumultuous production. Um, yes. Time in production. At one point, to kind of go with the original book, Claudette was going to be Christine's father, mm-hmm. hence why he's funding her music lessons. But then that gets taken out, so then we're left kind of wondering what are his motivations even. Um, so it just, yeah, because of the troubled production and the constant changes to the script, the film doesn't really know what it's going for. It's a fun enough film, it's interesting, but it's not a horror movie. I think that's a fair assessment. So the main reason Universal made the 1943 version of Phantom of the Opera, was largely because the original Lon Chaney Sr. 1920s version of Phantom of the Opera had cost uh, an astronomical amount of money. (laughs) And so they had these huge opera house sets and all this money that they'd put into making that movie. And the idea was, you know, making a remake in sound and in color, you could recoup those costs. And as you sort of alluded to, it took them so long to make that remake, you know, 20 years, because of, you know, these constant disagreements about what the script should be and and kind of the different problems that Universal went through over that time in terms of the studio's finances and so on. Yeah, the Lemleys losing the studio. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things. Um, But largely that was kind of the reason for it, was, was to try and make some money back on this investment. The 1943 remake had um, enough success and acclaim, uh, including winning two Oscars, that Universal began working on the production of a sequel right away. And the idea of doing a sequel for the 43 Phantom was motivated by much the same reason as why they wanted to do the 43 Phantom in the first place. Box office receipts for Phantom 43 while good, hadn't quite recovered the cost of the production. The cost of Phantom 43 was something like $1.75 million, and it made like $1.6 million at the box office. A little bit short. Mm-hmm. So a sequel could really help with that in terms of recouping costs by reusing the same sets and costumes and so on and so forth. Now, I'll remind you that um, you might be saying, well, 
why do they have to recoup costs for the remake? Wasn't the remake recouping costs from the silent film? But I will remind you that while the remake reused the Paris Opera House sets from the silent film, they had to refurbish all of those sets for sound, uh, which was a very expensive process. Yes. We kind of talked a a little bit about the 1929 Phantoms, like attempt to step into sound Mm -hmm. a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, with some like almost like re-released upgraded versions. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to be as simplistic as possible here. If you want to hear <laughs> more story. If you want to hear more about the complex production history of Fam of the Opera, you need to go back to episode 108 and you also need to go back to like episode 14 just, you know, learn all about the long involved history. So, uh the sequel was initially announced as starring Susanna Foster, Nelson Eddy, and Claude Rains. So, the three main actors set to return. And honestly, like, I would be pretty into the idea of a sequel to Phantom 43. Because that movie had taken so long to actually get to the Phantom of the Opera part of the story. Because of, like, giving the Phantom this long origin story that we see beforehand. And focusing so much on the romantic triangle. Um, that by the time they actually got to the Phantom stuff, the movie's basically over. You know, one of the critiques we had in that episode was that the movie's ending was very rushed. So, you know, making a sequel to depict the film's climax, (laughs) that makes sense to me. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was 43 Phantoms weird in how, like, it starts pretty Phantom-heavy, Ends pretty phantom heavy, and then this long, long middle of just what? However, Claude Rains was under contract with Warner Brothers throughout the 1940s, and Universal could not secure a loan for the sequel uh, like they had for the remake. So, with Rains no longer able to perform in the movie, Nelson Eddy dropped out as well. <laughs> Uh, leaving Universal after his much-publicized move there from MGM, uh, as he was unhappy with how Universal had treated him on the production of Phantom, which we talk about more in that episode. With only Foster and the sets remaining, the script was retooled into an original story, using names and some incidents taken from Edward Locke's play The Climax, in order to serve as sort of a new narrative backbone. Yeah, I did some research about Edward Locke, and there's not a lot about him, even though the stuff he wrote seems to have been fairly popular. Okay. So he was born in Stourbridge, England, in 1869, and he started out as a theater and vaudeville actor as a teenager. Okay. So I kind of imagine he ran away from home, you know? (laughs) Sure. But I have no info to substantiate that. Um, He started writing vaudeville acts, started getting more into theater rather than vaudeville, and would end up publishing his first play at 36 years old. And that would be Fighting Fate in 1905. He would follow that up with The Climax in 1909, The Case of Becky in 1912, 1915's The Revolt, and six others all coming out uh, with his last coming out in 1928. Okay. Um, Out of all of these, the ones that seem to have kind of done the best 
are The Climax and The Case of Becky. Um, the Case of Becky, like I said, it came out in 1912. It actually had a 1921 film adaptation from Paramount. Hmm. And it's about dissociative identity disorder. Wild. Yeah. Of course, they call it, like, multiple personalities. Mm-hmm. DID is kind of a modern label for it. So what's the play about? The Climax is about a doctor named John Raymond, who is in love with his patient. Nice. I'm sure that goes well. Oh, yes. Definitely. His patient is Adelina von Hagen, who is a singer on the stage. Now, John, he believes that no woman can succeed on the stage and come out virtuous. That's... Bad. Bad. Yep. So he uses uh, a process of what they describe as mental suggestion. Uh, so hypnosis. Yes. Um, mixed with uh, a special fluid that you spray in your vocal cords. You know those like perfume bottles where like you open your mouth and you right. spoon? Yeah, it's like that. Okay, so he has mind control mouthwash. <laughs> so her big break arrives, and in the climax of her career, Annalena's voice is gone. Oh no. Because of this medicine spray. Oh no. So she gives up the stage to marry John. Who could have seen this coming? On the morning of their wedding, her voice returns and John confesses to doing all of this. Why? Um, so she leaves him and is overjoyed at her voice being back and presumably continues her career. Wait, that's, that's the story? That is a synopsis of the story, yes. That doesn't so, sound good. Okay, well, here's the thing. A um, couple things going on here. One, this play is from 1909. Uh-huh. So the only real synopsis I could find were from reviews of the play. Okay. Um, which were kind of neat to find. So this is like, there could be perhaps a, a little bit of a game of telephone going on here. Sure. It just sounds like not a lot happens. That doesn't sound like a lot of like, it's like, he takes away her voice, so she quits singing. And then he confesses. And then she leaves him and goes back to singing. <laughs> yeah, the moral of the story is don't be a shitty dude. No, I, I get it. It's just like, that's not much of a story. <laughs> well, it was quite popular. Okay. So much so that there was actually a film adaptation in 1930 from Universal Pictures. Ah, so they already had the rights to this. Yeah, so it was directed by Renald Hoffman and starred Gene Herschelt. Catherine Crawford, also known as Kitty Moran, Leroy Mason, John Reinhardt, and Henry Armetta. We actually saw Henry Armetta in the 34 Black Cat. Okay. Which is kind of neat. Now, the thing about this film adaptation is Wikipedia describes it as a thriller, mm-hmm. but the American Film Institute classifies it as romance. Regardless, nothing about the plot synopsis of the play you gave really strikes me as, like, horror unless you, like, up the intensity in some of those story elements to a significant degree. Yeah. Now, the film adaptation, which, from what I've read, is fairly accurate, Okay. has Adela aspiring to be an opera singer like her mother. Her grandfather arranges for her to be tutored by music teacher Luigi Golfanti, who actually taught her mother. Adela falls in love with Luigi's son, Pietro, who actually writes some music for her in, like, this love song. So Adela gets uh, scouted. The scout 
says that she is going to be an amazing singer, but she should probably have an operation just to, like, improve her voice a little bit. Okay. So enter Dr. Gardoni, who is going to perform the operation to improve her voice, but he is jealous of Pietro. Okay. So he does the operation and causes her to lose her voice entirely. (laughs) Okay. So because she's now lost her voice, Pietro is persuaded by his father to not marry Adela. So instead, because the only other person in the movie is Dr. Gardoni, Adele is going to marry Dr. Gardoni. That's wild. Like, hi, (laughs) I'm the doctor who performed the malpractice that ruined your life. Do you want to get married? I see that you haven't said no, so I guess that means yes. So, on the wedding day, Pietro plays this love song that he had written for Adela, and... Due to the power of love, she manages to sing again and <laughs> sing along. Uh, and Gardoni runs off in shame. <laughs> that sounds terrible. That sounds like a terrible movie. It definitely sounds more romance than thriller as well. Yeah. Um, again, like if you if you upped the intensity on some of these plot elements a little bit, I could see how you could get there. There's a bit of like a reverse Svengali thing going on here where like, the older man ruins your career instead of giving you one. Mm -hmm. But I can also see, like, I can see the elements that you could take from this to tie it to Phantom of the Opera, if you were wanting to use this as, like, the basis to do more phantom stuff, because you have, like, the older man who's obsessed with the young ingenue singer, and she's got her young boyfriend who doesn't matter, and, you know, this kind of connection, and... You know, the older man is angry, and so he's going to, like, sabotage her as revenge and and so on. Like, I I can see how the dots get connected, you know? Yeah. Now, Edward Locke, um, he died uh, in New York in 1945. Okay. Which means that uh, he was 75, uh, which means that he would have had the opportunity to see both the 1930 adaptation as well as... This adaptation of the climax. Right. So I feel like this adaptation is going to be, my guess is not... Good? <laughs> ...true to the play. Yeah. It's sort of, you know, this is kind of your your diehard situation where you're taking something that was unrelated and using it to be the basis of a sequel to your first thing, right? Yeah, um, I, I think it's... Like, if I had to guess, it's probably going to be used more as a blueprint mm-hmm. than an adaptation attempting to adapt this specific play. Right. Well, a lot of, like, I mean, it's not like things are so much different today. A lot of the modus operandi of, like, Golden Age Hollywood Studios was buying up IP to serve as building blocks for projects, right? Well, they're pumping out so much stuff. It makes sense that they want to have a catalog of things that can help inspire. Yeah, absolutely. And not have to worry about, like, potential plagiarism suits. Right, exactly. And, like, you know, you know that you're going to make a movie with this actor and this actress, and his persona is that, and her persona is this, and so what do you have in the 
IP library that can kind of lend itself to that. And, you know, also you want to do something set here because it's trendy this year. You know what I mean? Like, you, you almost imagine this, like, um, Rolodex, like, file card <laughs> system of, like, aha, here's the play we own that fits that. So the 1943 Phantom had been produced by George Wagner, and the climax he actually produced, directed, and co-wrote with Kurt Siedmack and Lynn Starling. Okay. Now, with Claude Rains out of the picture, it was decided that the new film would serve as a comeback vehicle for Boris Karloff. Yay! Using the glamour of Technicolor in order to lure him back to Universal. <laughs> as you may recall, Karloff had left Universal... Uh, under somewhat acrimonious um, circumstances following the production of Son of Frankenstein in 1939. Uh, And he went to Columbia for a series of mad scientist movies. And the last time we saw Karloff was in 1941 in The Devil Commands, all the way back in episode 82. He had spent 1941 through 1944 acting on stage in the highly successful play Arsenic and Old Lace only appearing in the 1942 film The Boogeyman Will Get You in order to finish out his Columbia contract. The run of Arsenic and Old Lace on stage closed June 17, 1944, after 1,444 performances. Damn. That's pretty good, right? Like, yeah. That's, yeah, okay. yeah, it ran for three years. Yeah. That's pretty good. You know, sometimes it's hard to gauge how successful something is. On June 25th, Karloff had a spinal operation to relieve his chronic arthritis. Ooh. The climax was his first film back in Hollywood, I guess you could say, and his first in Technicolor. So I can sort of imagine, you know, he doesn't want to work for Universal, um, but he's been out of the game in Hollywood for a while. You know, who's going to offer him parts? Uh, You know, and hey, you can do this in Technicolor. Also, pay for that surgery you just had. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Replacing Nelson Eddy as the heroic romantic lead is Turhan Bey, Universal's Turkish heartthrob, who we last saw in The Mad Ghoul. Since then, he'd appeared third build in Universal's Technicolor adventure flick Alibaba and the Forty Thieves, as well as the anti-Japanese film Dragon Seed, starring Katherine Hepburn as a Chinese woman. Oof. Yeah, it's about, like, a Chinese village that gets, like, oppressed by the Japanese. Catherine Hepburn plays a character named Jade. Ooh, okay. Also appearing in the climax is Gail Sondergaard, who we enjoyed in 1941's The Black Cat and 1944's The Invisible Man's Revenge. Mm-hmm. Finally, there's the sad story of teen actor Scotty Beckett. Born in 1929, Beckett had starred as a child actor in the Our Gang series from 1934 to 1935, before he was replaced by Alfalfa in 1935. Ooh, that has to sting. Beckett, for his part, actually moved on to a successful run in feature films in a wide variety of child and teen roles, including this one when he was 15. In 1948, at age 19, he was arrested for drunk driving, and he had trouble transitioning to adult roles. His career got a second chance when, at age 25, he was cast as the sidekick on the popular television series Rocky Jones' Space Ranger. But his drinking and his gambling 
caused problems when he was fired from the series after he was arrested for carrying a concealed weapon and passing bad checks. He explained that the check was bad because he was in debt for gambling, and he had the gun in order to protect himself from the people he owed gambling money to. Makes sense. He gave up show business and became a car salesman, falling into alcoholism and drug abuse. He was arrested again in 1957, and twice in 1959. Later that year, he was in a car crash that put him in a wheelchair. In 1962, he attempted suicide after a drinking binge. In 1968, he checked into a nursing home seeking medical attention after a severe beating from his gambling debtors. Two days later, he was found dead in his room alongside a suicide note and a bottle of barbiturates. The L.A. coroner, however, ruled the cause of his death unknown. So the climax features cinematography from Howard Green and Hal Moore, who were the Oscar-winning cinematographers of Phantom 43, as well as music from Edward Ward, who had composed the music for Phantom 43. The budget for the climax was $750,000, but when the film was released on October 20th, 1944, it was a commercial and critical failure. Oh no. That's kind of an anticlimactic ending. For this sequel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Quote-unquote sequel. Mm-hmm. So how are we watching the Climax? Well, the Climax today is available on DVD as part of the Boris Karloff Collection from Universal Home Video. Well, folks, if you would like to watch along, get yourself a copy of that collection. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss the Climax from 1944, directed by George Wagner. See you on the other side, everybody. to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Climax from 1944, directed by George Wagner. Ben, what did you think of this movie? This was fine. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I had a fun time. Yeah. If you want to see uh, someone who is just absolutely like, fully supportive and in love with their partner on screen, uh, watch this movie, because Turhan Bay at moments has little heart eyes as his character supports his love interest, mm. Susanna Foster. Yes. Yeah. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to spread, you know, Hollywood gossip that Turhan Bay and Susanna Foster are a thing, but, like, Turhan Bay has literal heart eyes when his character is, like, so happy and excited for his partner. It's so good. We talked a bit about, before the break, what the play was about and what the first movie version was about and I was worried because neither of those sounded like plots that (laughs) were interesting yeah um but this 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 turned out to have a much more like oh yes this is recognizably a story kind of story so why don't you tell us about it Sarah sure so the film opens with Dr. Friedrich Honer who is Karloff wandering the Vienna Opera House yeah, there was no, like, confirmation in the movie of where we were. It did seem vaguely Germanic and vaguely late 19th century. Um, Wikipedia says Vienna, so sure. Yeah, 
Anyways, <laughs> so he's wandering the Royal Opera House, and he's remembering the night of his love's last performance. And this is Marcelina. Um, she is performing the magic voice in this flashback. And this is ten years ago. And after her performance, Honer goes to her and says, That was a great performance, but I don't want you singing for anyone but me. Um, you have to quit and just marry me. And she's like, um, no. <laughs> uh, so he feels that her voice has come between them, and he shall silence that voice forever, and he strangles her. To death. I thought that was the implication of <laughs> strangling someone. <laughs> so, anyways, it's ten years later. There is kind of a mystery to what did happen to Marcelina. Um, and we get introduced to this mystery as, uh, you know, right before we head into this flashback and then we see what happens to Marcelina. And you might be wondering, well, then what's the mystery? Like, did they just not find her? And yes, keep that, keep that thought under your hat right now. Yeah, everyone in this movie is like, ah, she mysteriously disappeared ten years ago. What a tragedy, Dr. Honer, that you're... Your your love disappeared under such mysterious, tragic circumstances. And he's like, yes, what a mysterious, tragic mystery. <laughs> so the rest of the film is set ten years after that incident. And Honer hears the new ingenue, Angela Klatt, singing. And this is Susanna Foster. And he swears it's Marcelina's voice. Like, her, this is just how good her voice is. Clat is really making waves in the opera house and is cast in a big performance. This is kind of like her big break. Now, I should probably just take a, a moment. Um, Dr. Friedrich Honer is the doctor of the opera house, so he like looks after people's voices, uh, the performers, that sort of thing. Um, so it's not weird, sort of, when after the performance, after her big performance, um, he asks her to come to his house for a throat exam. His house is, like, around the corner from the opera house. Yeah. That's where his, like, doctor's office is. Yeah. And it is kind of weird that he's doing this after the performance, but um, there's, like, this film does a really good job of being, like, you know, that's a little weird, but I guess I'll go with it. Yeah, you, you can understand it because um, Angela is thrust into this, like, prima donna role kind of from nowhere. Like, she goes from being kind of like an opera fangirl who's studying at the conservatory to prima donna. So she doesn't actually know the, like, for realsies um, operating procedure. So when Dr. Honer's like, yes come with me to my house. It's Everybody does this. It's like, oh, okay, sure. Mm -hmm. um, at his house we meet his maid, Louise, uh, who is Gail Sondergaard, um, and she does her kind of, like, suspicious shtick. Um, turns out she had been Marcelina's maid in the past and was hired here because... Honer f felt bad that she was out of a job, mm. so blah. She was Marcelina's maid... And companion. Yeah. I did catch that as well. This third exam turns out to just be a session of hypnosis. <laughs> um, and Honer tells Clat that she can never sing again. Um, 
and they use this, um, what did they call it? The throat spray? Atomizer. The film uses this atomizer as a symbol of his power over her. Yeah, he hypnotizes her to never sing again, and then he says, like, whenever you see this thing, you'll be reminded of my power over you, so take it with you. So the actual spray doesn't do anything. It's just a psychological suggestion. Yeah, and actually, like, late in the movie, they realize that it's literally just colored water. There's not actually anything in there. After Clap leaves this uh, hypnosis session, uh, we do see what happened to Marcelina's body as Honer goes to a uh, kind of private room. It's this door behind some velvet curtains and uh, this like locked door and he has Marcelina's body in kind of a glass casket, Snow White style, and he just has her in there, which is super weird and creepy and awesome for a horror movie. And he's like, your voice has come between us again. Yeah, it's really clear that Honer is uh, off his rocker. Yes. He, you know, not only is incensed that there's this ingenue who can sing as well as his, like, dead crush who he murdered. Now he has to take her voice away. But also, it's it's implied that, like, he just hears Marcelina's Ooh. voice just kind of everywhere now and again. Yeah, that that was um, kind of a neat thing. So that happens after the hypnosis session that we start to hear her voice and he's reacting and it cuts out when he turns off lights and stuff. Um, but when he first hears Clot singing, he like reacts and hears it and then someone else goes, oh, yeah, that's a new ingenue. And he says, oh, you hear it too? Because yeah. so it's not like new that he's hearing Marcelina's voice. Yeah, everywhere. it's it's implied that like he regularly hallucinates her, and what's surprising to him is just that like oh someone else heard it. So part of what motivates Honer to take away Klatt's voice is he overhears the manager saying that with such a talent as Klatt, they are um, planning on putting on the opera. Um, the magic voice again, and that was Marcelina's last performance. Yeah, and they haven't put it on in ten years because no one's good enough to sing it. Yeah, I mean, there are some pretty high notes in there. Mm. During a rehearsal for the magic voice, Clut's voice breaks, um, and she can't sing. So she is taken to Honer's house to stay and recover, but he basically keeps her under lock and key, and no one is allowed to see her. Now, I haven't mentioned him up till this point, but Terhan Bey plays Franz, uh, Klatt's fiancé. Um, he's been in the story during this point, but he comes into the synopsis now as Louise helps him get Klatt out of Honer's house. And this is when Franz and um, his dad? No. Who's the guy? Um, so Franz, in addition to being Angela's fiancé, has also been like her voice trainer, it's sort of implied. Like, he's always the one playing the piano for her when she's rehearsing and things like that, and he's kind of her biggest supporter. And they live in, as, like, boarders at the house of um, this older couple, and the, um, I can't remember his name, but, like, the older man is the prompter at the opera. So it's, like, a way for them to, like, live closer to the opera, and um, this, like, older man, like, 
sneaks them in and stuff. I think he might have actually said that Franz was his nephew. Mm, that's um, it. Anyways, yeah, neither of us can remember his name. No. So we'll call him Bob. So Franz and Bob at this point start to get suspicious of Honer and that he isn't very honorable. To try to snap Clat out of this hypnosis and this, like, oh, I can't sing, he thinks it's basically stage fright, Franz and Bob arrange... Bob fought in the wars before, and so they go to see the king, uh, who turns out to be... Of Austria? Yeah, who turns out to be the kid Ben was talking about earlier. Yeah, he's like a 15-year-old king. I don't know if this is really supposed to be anybody, because, like... I get the sense that this movie is just sort of set in, like, fantasy Europe, in a way. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, fictional Europe. Um, But the closest thing I could think of is Emperor Franz Joseph, who became, like, the Austria-Hungarian emperor at age 18. Nobody really in the time period on either side of him became king, like, any younger than that. Mm-hmm. So this is that's and the, which would put this movie in like the eighteen forties, like eighteen forty eight, I think. But I don't actually think this movie cares. Yeah, Anyways. so I'm not going to care about it. Right. So the king, he's like fifteen years old or maybe younger. Anyway, so they arrange um, for him to v- put in a royal request for Clat specifically to perform the magic voice. Now the climax of the climax. <laughs> comes on the night of this performance. Clot is getting ready to go on stage. She's in her costume, and Honer comes in to kidnap her again. His plan is basically to surgically remove her vocal cords. He's like, I've tried to do this the bloodless way through hypnosis. Now I'm just, it, I'm just going to take them out. Um, he is interrupted by Louise, who confronts him about Marcelina and says... Ten years now, I've watched you, and now I know you killed Marcelina. I took this job ten years ago to find out proof that you did it. Because I always suspected you. Uh, And it's great. Um, And at this point, Franz and Bob uh, interrupt um, Honor, basically about to strangle Louise, uh, interrupt with a gun, and take... They take Clat back to the stage, and uh, Bob is there holding Honer at gunpoint. So they can hear the performance in the house. That's how close they are. So they hear Clat performing, and as she sings, she clearly breaks the hypnosis that's held. And when Honer realizes this, he um, tries to escape from his house. He gets cornered by the police that Louise have kinda, has kind of sent to the house, And he runs and locks himself in Marcelina's room, where he accidentally knocks over this lamp torch, and the whole room just goes up in flames, and he gets trapped and dies on the glass casket with this mannequin version of Karloff just, like, combusting in in so much fire. There's so much fire in this room. The film ends on Clat's curtain call uh, after a successful performance. Mm-hmm. The end. So you said something during your plot synopsis that makes me concerned for the future of this episode, which is you said something about, you know, oh yeah, you know, the, the, the Karloff's character is really great, uh, has some great qualities um, for a horror movie. And I went, oh no. Oh, you don't think this is horror? No, I don't. Oh, well, 
that's in the ranking section of the show. We are in the discussion section of the show. Uh-huh. I, like I said at the beginning, I, I did really do enjoy this movie. I enjoyed it as well. I think um, it's definitely a movie you'll enjoy more if you know what to expect going in. But I will say, I think this did what Phantom 43 wanted to do yeah. better than Phantom 43. I would agree with that. Um, I think part of that is... There's three things that contribute to that. Mm. So one is that... One thing we really um, critiqued the 43 Phantom for is with Technicolor, you need to have a lot of lights going in order for it to work, just yes. the process of Technicolor. Yeah, you need you need higher exposure. And that doesn't lend itself well to horror. Right. Can't do spooky shadows. Exactly. The Climax, I think, found a way to temper that by using a lot of these darker shades of purple in lieu of shadow. Yeah, the color palette helped give it the horror feel rather than the lighting. Yeah. So while we didn't have any stark contrast film noir type shots, we had moments where... You know, if we're on the street, everything's in, like, a dark purple. There was a lot of use of green Mm -hmm. in this, which I think Hitchcock would have liked. Yeah. uh, Because he he always talks about how green represents evil. Um, But I thought it was interesting because uh, it reminded me of the film Dr. X, which was two-tone Technicolor, but they specifically used green as one of the colors that would be picked up um, to kind of create a bit more of a horror atmosphere. I don't think they were quite using it in that way in the climax, but it was clear that their use of color was a bit more purposeful and thought out than in the 43 Phantom. The second reason is um, we do get some full performances here, but it's like maybe two or three versus like the 43 Phantom just felt like performance after performance after performance, and it felt like full scenes of performances, whereas here they felt shorter, if not just fully abridged. I also felt that this movie still has the same emphasis on spectacle and giving you songs and giving you romance and all this stuff that the 43 Phantom did, but I did feel that the performances we do get at least are motivated by the story in their appearances. Like, I understand why the story is showing us performance X, Y, or Z, mm-hmm. um, whereas Phantom felt a bit more um, gratuitous. Yeah. And then the third thing is, I think, thanks to Seedmack. Mm. So Kurt Seedmack actually did the adaptation of the climax play into the story, and then George Wagner, Lynn Starling, and Seedmack worked to actually write the screenplay. In fact, um, I think Seedmack and Starling wrote the screenplay, and Wagner got a writing credit because he wrote the lyrics for the <laughs> songs, that which would is sense. wild. Yeah, that was that was a fun credit to see. Um, but Seedmack clearly found a way to make the Doctor's motivations more clear, because that was something like you you kind of brought this up in the as we opened the second half of the show, but. Um, as we were hearing about the play and the 1930 climax, we weren't very hopeful about what this movie would be. Yeah. And Seedmack managed to, like, put in a darker tone with 
the backstory of the yeah. Doctor without yeah. taking away from like what the actual movie is. And give the Doctor a backstory without it needing to be like half the movie, which is yeah. like what the problem with Claude Rains's Phantom was was that it required like so much backstory and turned it into this like long Phantom of the Opera origin story thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also I can't remember who the writers on Phantom Forty Three were. But I don't think they were, like, experienced horror writers. Yeah, that as well. Like, Steve Mack, he writes in a ton of genres, but we know he's very good at writing horror. Mm-hmm. So those are the three things that I think made this movie work for me. I think it's about 20 minutes shorter than Phantom 43, if I remember correctly. Because it doesn't have the full performances. Well, and it's, it's just not wasting as much time. I think another thing that's very smart about it is... Not having the unnecessary love triangle that Phantom 43 did. Like, you know, if you think about, like, what characters you need to tell the story. Because it's still a fairly similar, like, story skeleton to Phantom of the Opera, right? Mm-hmm. We have young Ingenue, her boyfriend, old villain, you know, at an opera house, right? The mm-hmm. jealous prima donna is even a character. There's a lot of similar characters, right? But in Phantom of 43... Christine had two love interests and they were so redundant to each other. The movie had jokes about them like saying the same sentences at the same time, right? Like they only had that because they wanted one of them to be a singer. And here, Turhan Bey can't sing. He doesn't sing, but he's still integrated into the opera plot by being like a musician. Like he wants to be a composer or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And so with just three people in that love triangle, that works a lot better. And it doesn't confuse Boris Karloff's motivations. Um, I think in terms of adapting this from the play, changing it from it being like, you know, like Angela isn't the girl that Honor's in love with. It's she reminds him of his lost love of years ago who he killed, which I mean, part of that's also just because Karloff's like 60 years old or whatever. Right. And it's just increasingly problematic to try and suggest, like, that he's got a crush on, you know, Susanna Foster or whatever. Although it is Susanna Foster playing Marcelina in the flashback. I thought so. Yeah. But they had done her makeup in such a way that she looked older. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and then they were also doing Karloff's makeup to age him down, right? Yes, Yeah. yeah. Mainly just helping take out some of the gray in his hair. But yeah, I thought this was a better movie than Phantom 43. And I think the other thing that helped it was not being beholden so much to source material. Phantom 43 ran into problems because it was trying to remake Phantom of the Opera, but change all these elements in it to, you know, be different for whatever reason. And the story ended up not making sense anymore Mm -hmm. because you had changed enough things that you had kind of broken it, right? Yeah. And this movie has more freedom, I think, to just take pieces from the source material and rearrange them however it sees fit. And the story is fine. The story makes sense. You you get it. Uh, it all works. And it has that freedom to say, okay, we want this movie to be this, right? Because Phantom 43 wanted to be this big spectacle movie with romance and songs and beautiful costumes and all of this, you know, and some comedy and whatever. And so it had to warp the Phantom of the Opera story to get there. 
this movie knew, okay, that's what we want to be, so let's just concoct a story that'll work for that, right? It, it felt a bit more of a piece. It didn't feel like it was fighting with itself. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I think the fact also is that the climax was adapting something that was less well-known. Right. So they didn't feel the pressure to be beholden to it. But also, Phantom is just something really hard to adapt. Like, even the source material, the the novel, doesn't quite have a set genre. Right. Like, so, like, it's very diff. Like, we saw the difficulties in the 1929 one. Right, yeah, like, even the Lon Chaney Phantom changed, you know... Several, or, several times. Exactly, before they kind of hit this final version. Um, but, yeah, I thought this was better... Karloff is, of course, very, very good at being menacing and then putting on, like, a um, a gentle face, right? Yeah. That's a that's a shtick that Karloff has perfected over the years. The idea of, like, I'm just this sweet doctor and just come into my, my uh, parlor, young lady, and I'll just take a look at your throat and then I'll kill you. Um, you know, like, <laughs> this, he's really perfected, you know, his, his deal and... And so he works a lot better, and I think it works better than Claude Rains' character, who was kind of this, like, put-upon, pathetic schmo, you know? Yeah, who suddenly had to go Suddenly had to crazy. become menacing, yeah. Yeah. Um, Turan Bay's really good in this, as you said. Yeah. He's just, like, doughy-eyed this whole movie at Susanna Foster, who also is giving a pretty good performance as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Gail Sondergaard's doing her creepy lesbian shtick, which is, like... What she's here for. Yeah, it's it's a good time. Uh, I, I, I did enjoy this. Yeah. Um, I think, though, like, I would have liked this movie a bit more if it had more, um, more gruesomeness. Yeah. Some more carnage. Yeah. And by that I mean, like, like as we're watching it, um, the end of the film, we have Susanna singing on stage and the room where Karloff is just going up in flames, and I turn to Ben as, like, the movie is ending, that I kind of wish... Susanna has, like, this one really high note, and, like, the the thing with this performance is that she, like, does, like, an arpeggio hits a note, arpeggio hits a higher note, arpeggio hits the highest note. And I kind of wanted, at the highest note, for us to cut back to the flaming room and just hold on that really underlined that she can sing because of her confidence coming back, breaking out of the hypnosis, and then fade to black, roll credits. But what we get instead is, like, we see the room go up in flame, we cut back to the performance, we see the last, like, minute or so of the performance, the high notes, whatever, and then the curtain falls down, she bows, it's successful performance, blah, blah, blah. Um, So I just wanted, like, something a little more. Well, and this is part of why... I don't think this is horror, because I think that instance is a good example of the movie not prioritizing horror um, as being what the movie's about, right? Like, that ending shows us that what the movie's prioritizing is, like, the love story and the, like, a star is born career story. Mm -hmm. See, I disagree. I think, like, they could have better underlined it, but I don't think that by not underlining it, that they aren't doing it. Case in point is when, like, the film opens, we get the flashback almost immediately, and we see Marcelina get strangled, like, on screen. It's pretty gruesome. So from there, we know 
that Karloff killed Marcelina, but mm-hmm. no one else knows. So we know he's not right. So when he's interacting with Clat, when he is, like, basically approaching her out of the darkness of the street to bring her back home to do this hypnosis, like, everything is very, very creepy. I think this film did a really good job of showing how, like, as a lady, you kind of go like, yeah, okay, to, like, one too many things, and eventually you get to a situation where, like, no, this is a bad situation, I need to get out of here. For sure. And you see that when um, Karloff first approaches her after the performance, it's, like, out of nowhere, and she's like, no, I should really write for Franz, and he's like, no, trust me, this is what we always do, come this way. Oh, that's, like, come into my um, office here, let me show you, like, things that Marcelina owned, and she's trying to be polite about it, and then he, like, puts the pearls around her throat. Like, there's just... When you... you There's nothing so explicit that you say, like, no, I need to go. Mm-hmm. But it's just moments of, like, you're pushing my boundaries, but not hard enough for me to be able to say stop without coming off as nasty. Yeah, I understand what you're getting at. I think the movie does do a very good job of making... Of presenting that scenario... You know, making Karloff creepy in a way that it's believable that she wouldn't just, like, immediately get out of there, right? Like, he doesn't come out of the shadows like Peter Laurie, like, oh, let me take you back to my house. And it's like, no, you're Peter Laurie. I'm going to go. <laughs> you know, like, it's, it's, it's oh, doll, my, my dear, please, we need to look at your throat and so on. And you're like, well, okay. Um, so I think the movie does do a very good job of that. I think Karloff, obviously, is a horror element as a actor he is known as a horror star so it gives the movie like that horror element um but i think that you know again this is a movie where i wish more of it was from angela Klatt's point of view especially after she gets kidnapped like once she's kidnapped we're going with franz's point of view and he's this hero and we're gonna arrange a rescue and we're you know arranging things with louise to get in to get her out and all of this stuff And I really wish we could have been there from Angela's point of view, seeing what Honor's doing with her during that time. You know, get more of a sense of what his control over her is like. I think, for me, this movie felt most like melodrama. That's sort of the category that I would put it in. Because it's, you know, certainly a drama. It's got this love triangle element but it's also got that sort of the sort of melodramatic like this guy's clearly a villain and we have to rescue the damsel from his like clutches and and this kind of thing but the the horror elements never quite got strong enough for me if there is a weakness to this versus phantom it's that honer's obsession is so specific that he's never really much of a threat to anyone else like he he knocks out old man Bob at the end of the movie because Bob has, like, a gun on him, right? But, like, there wasn't a lot going on for the rest of the movie in terms of what was threatening in the same way that, like, the Phantom would, like, off people if they got in his way, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there wasn't anything quite there. And, I, you know, it's it's almost like I wish that, you know, someone had discovered Honor's secret midway through the movie so he could kill them just to give us a bit more horror, you know? He goes to kill Louise, yeah, but that's at the end of the movie, right? Where we're already in 
back in that territory. I, I, I'm saying, like, I wish there was something as the movie that was, was going along to kind of, like, remind us of that threat, but... Sure. I see what you're saying. I still disagree, because I think the fact that he's not a threat to anyone else plays into the horror that Clat is probably feeling. You know, everyone else is like, he's a doctor, listen to him. But you know he is not a good guy. I, 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 I sympathize with the position you're taking here because you're, you know, you have this read on the movie that I, I don't think it's an incorrect reading. I think the movie is at fault because, you know, you just now had to say the horror that Clat is probably feeling. If this was a stronger movie, you wouldn't need to use the word probably. Like, my, my issue with this movie is that it is speaking to, like, a, um, an experience of women that, you know, is very much something that's, like, hitting you dear to heart. But the movie is not itself emphasizing it enough for it to be really what the movie is about. Like, I think that, you know, you, you identified the movie starting with him strangling Marcelina as being gruesome. I found it certainly made you sit up and pay attention and said, like, hey, this guy's, this guy's the bad guy. But I don't know if gruesome's quite the right word because it was so... I even made a joke about it at the time of like how easy it was for her him to strangle her. He kind of lightly puts one hand around her throat and just sort of pushes her down to the ground and she's dead. Um, and part of that's production code stuff, right? You can't like be super <laughs> explicit, but like actually strangling someone takes a lot of effort and time, and it is very gruesome. I don't want to give you know our listeners the impression that Karloff's like you know doing an inglorious bastards style scene here at the start of the movie where, like, we're seeing Susanna Foster's eyes bug out of her head. We're not. She's, like, behind a desk or something. Like, there are elements here that I think are tripping off some very, like, key things that you are sensitive to that I think the movie would have been better putting more emphasis on that don't come off as strongly as they should. Yeah. Like, I mean, I sympathize with why they didn't because Clat is hypnotized, and they kind of portray that as she's in a daze. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard to have a prolonged scene and multiple scenes for like the rest of the movie from a dazed person's point of view. For sure. Um, with And like to have it still make sense. But I want to kind of call back to something that you said. You said that this was more melodrama yes. than anything else. I would agree. So yes. um, this is like nearly 10, just under 10 years before, but um, there was a movie that we watched that we first thought was horror and then decided it was more melodrama, um, and that's Todd Slaughter's Sweeney Todd. Right. So that's from 1936, so different standards of horror, to be fair. Um, episode 61, if you do want to take a listen. But I want to compare that film's use of melodrama mm -hmm. to Captive Wild Woman, where half of it is, like, horror with John Carradine. It's very well done, but then the other half of it is stock footage. Yeah, of a circus movie. Yeah, so stuff that isn't quite relevant, isn't really supporting the horror part of it. And I want to ask, like, where on a continuum from Todd Slaughter's <laughs> Sweeney Todd to Captive Wild Woman would you put the climax? See, the issue I have with the climax, and this comes back to our first episode, and, like, the I know it when I see it 
sort of standard. But the main thing I had watching this movie, and maybe, you know, you had a different reaction, and that's why we're having this disagreement, is I never felt like this movie's goal was to frighten the audience, to make the audience feel afraid or, or, or scared, which is like a key thing for a horror movie, in my mind. Because the movie felt like at every turn where it could be doing that, it was wanting to undercut itself just enough so that we weren't upsetting anybody because it felt like it was important for the movie to be getting in like the audience that came in to see the pretty dresses and the choreography and the singing. And it felt to me like the horror elements were more of a way to be spicing. Like there's this balance act going on in this movie between the horror elements and the, I don't know what to call them, the romantic elements, I guess, where the horror is providing some spice and some thrills to the romantic elements, and the romantic elements are sort of toning down and domesticating the horror elements. And ultimately my feeling was this wasn't a movie that was trying to bring opera to horror fans so much as bring, like, opera fans to horror. Like, the the intended audience, to me, feels like the audience that would go for, like, a glamorous, ritzy movie and then we're, like, putting in some horror stuff to, like, spice it up a little, right? Like, does that make any sense? Yes, but I think your description of bringing opera fans to horror implies that the per- that they were intending to make a horror movie. It just wasn't spicy enough for you as a horror fan. But an opera fan would find it horror. Yeah, I mean, my thing with this is, like... Phantom of the Opera is melodrama, right? But we include it as horror because it, like, is from 1925, you know? And horror is a much more amorphous thing at that time. We didn't include the 1943 Phantom because we felt it didn't have enough horror. I would agree that the horror quotient is higher here than in the 43 Phantom, there was still a lot of singing where the intent was clearly to just be sitting there and enjoying the song. Like, no dramatic tension, unlike in, say, the Lon Chaney Phantom, where during the opera performances there's dramatic tension because the Phantom's, you know, sneaking around about to drop chandeliers on people or turn Carlotta's voice into a frog's voice or whatever, right? Sure. But I think I, I should grant some credence to the fact that you're having an emotional reaction to, like, this element of this, like, man in power using his power against, like, a woman who can't really, like, say no, right? And I should give some credence to that. Like, I'm not having that reaction because I felt the movie didn't go hard enough, I guess, for me. But, like, it clearly did just fine for you. So I guess what I'm trying to say is like if you listener want like something that has the level of gruesome that say the Lon Chaney fan of the opera has, you're not going to get it from this movie. But you are going to get something more than you got from the Claude Rains Phantom of the Opera. So I'm willing to concede my point and say that we can rank this um as horror, but like I'm not inclined to rank it very high. Yeah, that's fine. My range, I don't think, is very high. So one thing that, like, 
helps for me put the climax into horror is they managed to find a way to use Technicolor to create a horror atmosphere mm. with those shades of purple. Sure. So I thought, when ranking, let's look at the other like very good, very well done Technicolor, at least two-tone Technicolor film. So that would be Dr. X, currently sitting at 51. Uh-huh. Um, right below that is Murders in the Room Morgue. Uh, I think in both these cases, the climax does not go above those. But right below that is Dracula's Daughter at 53. Dracula's Daughter kind of was doing a best-of hits of the Dracula shtick. Um, The climax, I think, also, as you've kind of pointed out, is trying to do a few too many things, um, trying to balance horror with comedy, romance, melodrama stuff. So I think... 53, Dracula's Daughter would be my ceiling. And then I went down to our other two-tone Technicolor horror movie, right. um, Mystery of the Wax Museum at 69. Now right above that is The Return of Dr. X, which has Humphrey Bogart stroking a rabbit. And I just felt like the climax is better than those. So it kind of went up to 64, The Lady and the Monster. Um, and the reason I kind of stopped around there is because the lady and the monster did not do a good job of adapting what they were adapting, um, but they were using lighting to further the story in very interesting ways, with this guy being controlled by a brain in a jar. <laughs> Man, if you think about some of these plots too long, it's 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 funny. Um, so for me, my floor is right around 64, the Lady and the Monster, with The Lady and the Monster potentially going above this. Alright, I'm going to pitch you a spot here. Sure. Um, Go for it. Because below The Lady and the Monster is The Invisible Man's Revenge, and which also has Gail Sondergaard in it. The Invisible Man's Revenge at least was trying to scare you. That is fair. Like, The Invisible Man's Revenge has the stuff where, like, he's invisible and he throws the water on his face and, like, freaks out Gail Sondergaard and then she's just not in the movie because she was so scared, mm-hmm. you know, for the rest of it. And it has uh, more of, like, a sense of menace behind it. Uh, that menace is, like, more active and present. I would think that a good spot for the climax would be below The Invisible Man's Revenge, above Voodoo Man. Because there is certainly at least a competency of filmmaking on display <laughs> here in the climax, which is a wonderful-looking movie with high production value that Voodoo Man does not demonstrate. Cool. I would agree with that spot, because below Voodoo Man is The Mad Monster, The Return of Dr. X, Mystery of the Rex Museum, Devil Doll. Like, yeah, I think this is a good spot for it. Okay. So, entering the list at number 66, The Climax, from 1944, directed by George Wagner. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screenscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes that we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, feel free to drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr, through email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. Using our RSS feed, you can subscribe to the podcast through any podcasting app of your choice. If the podcasting app of your choice happens to allow you to leave a rating or a review, we would very much appreciate you doing so. We love getting feedback from our listeners. 
You can also help the show out by telling a friend about the show, sharing it on social media, or heading over to our Patreon on patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as $1 a month. $5 patrons get access to weekly bonus audio, and $10 patrons get access to written content, horror fiction, essays, reviews uh, that are put out by me and don't show up anywhere else. At our first Patreon goal of $150 a month, we will start doing bonus episodes, one a month, on horror-adjacent films, films that are related to horror, but aren't horror. Um, So we might, you know, watch the Joel Schumacher Phantom of the Opera and say what we think (laughs) about Gerard Butler's beautiful singing voice. Uh, So all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast and sign up to enable the future where that happens. (laughs) To open up the timeline to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what are we watching next week, Ben? Well, next week, Sarah, we are sticking with Universal Pictures, and we are sticking with Boris Karloff. It is the Avengers of Universal Monster Movies, because it is the first monster rally picture. It is 1944's House of Frankenstein, featuring the Frankenstein monster, the Wolfman, Dracula, a mad scientist... J. Carol Nash. <laughs> Does J. Carol Nash play himself? Sure. Okay. Karloff's the mad scientist. Clearly, yeah. Uh, cool. Well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.